Good Tuesday morning. The search for answers is underway in Nashville. Yeah, police now piecing together that horrific, tragic shooting as a grieving community comes together. It's March the 28th. This is today. Haunting images, chilling video released overnight of the 28-year-old suspect shooting out the school's front doors and roaming the hallways where six people, including three children, were gunned down. There's some belief that there was some resentment for having to go to that school, and that's why this incident occurred. Inside the investigation and the emotional vigils honoring the victims as the mayor of Nashville joins us live. Racing to recover. I lost everything, and we really need help, man. Cleanup efforts moving forward across the tornado-ravaged south before the next outbreak of severe weather. We are live in hard-hit Mississippi, and Al is tracking the potential storm set to impact millions more. New testimony. The New York grand jury investigating Donald Trump hears from a crucial witness. But the timing of a potential indictment still unclear. We'll have the very latest. On the stand, Gwyneth Paltrow's accuser testifies at the high-profile ski accident trial, saying he suffered permanent injuries. Communication is not as smooth, and, and uh, um, it's, it's been more difficult, no question. Just ahead, how Paltrow's defense tried to cast doubt on his story and what's next for the case. All that plus, shining stars. Music's biggest names honored at the iHeartRadio Awards overnight. We'll take you inside the excitement on the stage and the red carpet. And hoops history. The Hokies advanced to the women's final four for the first time ever alongside unbeaten South Carolina. With both fields now complete, basketball fans look ahead to a thrilling final weekend of March Madness. Today, Tuesday, March 28, 2023. From NBC News, this is Today with Savannah Guthrie and Hoda Cuppy, live from Studio 1A in Rockefeller Plaza. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Welcome to today. We're so happy you're joining us. It's a Tuesday morning. Willie is in for Savannah, who is taking some uh, vacation time this week. Yeah, unfortunately, we have some terrible breaking news out of Nashville this morning. Overnight police releasing video. It shows glass doors shattered by gunfire and what police are now calling a targeted attack on an elementary school. Six people were killed, including three children, all just nine years old. The suspect who was killed by police, a 28-year-old transgender person who once attended that school. And consider this, okay, listen to these numbers. This is the nation's 13th school shooting so far in 2023. That means there's an average of one school shooting each week. In a moment, we're going to talk to the mayor of Nashville. But first, NBC's Katie Beck starts our coverage. Hey, Katie. Good morning, guys. Yeah, police say the shooter was 28 years old, living as a transgender person, a former student at the school who left behind a detailed manifesto of their plan. We're also learning this morning that without that quick reaction from police to disable the shooter, this tragedy could have been far worse. Overnight, police in Nashville releasing this chilling surveillance video, showing the terrifying moments the shooter blasted their way into the small private Presbyterian school, shooting right through locked glass doors. 
The video also shows the armed person entering a church office and later stalking the halls with an AR-style weapon drawn. One of three firearms investigators say the shooter had. We believe two of those may have been obtained legally locally here. Police calling the attack on the Covenant School targeted, adding the shooter left behind detailed plans of the deadly assault. We have a manifesto. We have a map drawn out of how this was all going to take place. Police identifying the shooter as 28-year-old Audrey Hale, who they say is transgender and was once a student at the school. There's some belief that there was some resentment for having to go to that school. Authorities say within 14 minutes, they were able to confront and kill the shooter who fired at officers from a second floor window, but not before Hale fatally shot three children and three adults. There's multiple victims down inside the school. Shooter is down now as well. Authorities later searching Hale's home, finding two shotguns and other evidence as they investigate potential motives. Among the victims, the school's headmaster, Dr. Katherine Kuntz, 61-year-old substitute teacher Cynthia Peak, and 61-year-old custodian Mike Hill. The children, all just nine years old, identified as Evelyn Dikas, William Kenny, and Hallie Scruggs, the daughter of the lead pastor of Covenant Church. Avery Myrick's mother was teaching in her classroom when the shooter opened fire. She said she was hiding in the closet and that there was shooting all over and just that she like loved us. Many parents unsure their children would come home. There were so many police cars and then the ambulances started coming away from the school. President Biden ordering flags to fly at half staff nationwide and urging Congress to pass a new assault weapons ban. We have to do more to stop gun violence. It's ripping our communities apart. While a group of new parents are now echoing a similar heartbreaking question. How are our children still dying and why are we failing them? Because this school is private and operated by a church, the Nashville Police Department says they do not staff school resource officers here. Police also tell us that the shooter had another intended target but decided against it because of security reasons. We do expect to hear more about the ongoing investigation and a potential motive later today. Hoda. All right, Katie, thank you so much. Joining us now, Nashville Mayor John Cooper. Mayor Cooper, uh, we're glad to see you this morning. Our deepest sympathies go out to your community today. I cannot even fathom what the last 24 hours have been like for you and those in your community. Can you tell us what you've learned about the victims and the shooting itself? Well, I think the lot of police work going on today, a lot of video footage, uh, just a big shout out to our first responders. I think you saw what they were dealing with, which was a prepared shooter with lots of ammunition who was clearly uh, shooting at them as they were coming in. As to motive and to the other uh, aspects of the case, I suspect today there'll be a lot of a reveal to it. Uh, the chief mentioned a manifesto that the shooter had written and is in their possession, and I think maybe that'll be the next step is the police department talking about this manifesto. Uh, Mayor, so more, more facts on the way today. Sure. Mayor, you talked very directly about guns and gun violence. This shooter was armed with two assault weapons and a pistol, and you were saying that the leading cause of death for children 
is guns and gunfire. It's not car accidents. And you called it unacceptable. And what struck me is at the very top of our broadcast, we said that so far there have been 13 school shootings this year. That's one per week. It almost makes you think that it is acceptable on some level. Well, and it isn't. I think this is the frustration by every city in the country, uh, how this could keep happening in this volume. In Tennessee, guns are essentially ubiquitous. And when guns and mental health issues come into contact with each other, you have big problems like we saw yesterday. And what is our worst day? Nashville's had challenges before. We've had tornadoes and floods. But when school children are attacked in their school, that, that's your worst day. Um, there was a photograph that um, is getting a lot of attention, and it's been circulating. It's uh, a picture of Congressman Andy Ogles, who happens to represent the district in which the shooting happened. It looks like a family Christmas card, and in it, it the family is, I don't know if you can see in that image, but they're all holding uh, big what appear to be some assault weapons. The, and this is what the quote says. The very atmosphere of firearms anywhere and everywhere restrains evil interference. They deserve a place of honor with all that is good. And they're surrounded by the Christmas tree. Wondered if you received that Christmas card or whether or not you did what you think of it. Well, I'm not on his Christmas card list, and I don't think it's appropriate. And I think the whole country can look at it and shudder a little bit and realize how inappropriate it is. Um, guns lead to tragedies. And whatever your political feelings are, we should not be celebrating the cult of the gun. And uh, we country needs to pick itself up and say no to an assault weapons lobby that, uh, again, uh, is making it too available and too convenient and too first of mind for people to go out and commit terrible acts. Mayor, um, you know, you're just talking about that, like what can be done, and everyone keeps saying, well, they don't do anything in Washington. After Sandy Hook in 2012, Connecticut did something. They instituted universal background checks. They expanded the state's assault weapons ban, and they outlawed new high-capacity magazines. And here's what happened as a result of that. From 2014 to 2021, Connecticut saw a 41% reduction in homicides. In 2020, Connecticut had the sixth lowest gun death rate among all 50 states. There are some things that can be done. It sounds like if this is an example at the state level, is that something you could see happening in Tennessee? Well, I think it would be very challenging for Tennessee, but I think it needs to be brought up. And I think people need to understand that common sense reforms, which are not really onerous on, on gun ownership, does make a big difference. And gun safety uh, and common sense regulations to kind of separate mental health challenges away from active gun ownership seem imperative. This is not, I mean, we used to do this a few years ago. What's happened is we've rolled back any common sense kind of understandings about how these assault weapons in particular uh, are, are managed in America, and you, you end up with disasters and tragedies. And it's not the diminishment of people's rights. It's how we live together in a society safely. All right. Well, National Mayor John Cooper, we appreciate your time. Our thoughts and prayers, of course, are with your community. Uh, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. 
Now to the long road to recovery ahead for the tornado-ravaged south. Communities across the region beginning to pick up the pieces following days of devastating and deadly storms. NBC's Maggie Vespa is on the ground for us in hard-hit Rolling Fork, Mississippi. Maggie, good morning. Yeah, Willie, good morning. Hard hit is right. This town is absolutely obliterated on every block and every direction you look. You see scenes like this, these semi trucks. It's kind of cliche, but tossed, piled up like toys, absolutely destroyed. So again, the road to recovery will be long. FEMA was on the ground yesterday making kind of that initial point of contact with people, letting them know they will have to sign up to get federal aid. At the same time, officials opening close to half a dozen shelters in the area, just trying to give people the hope they need to rebuild. This morning, a daunting cleanup is underway in a region ravaged by days of severe storms and devastating tornadoes. When I came up on it, I was hoping uh, for the best. And when I made it here, it was the worst. Joe Robinson's Mississippi home, one of an estimated 2,000 damaged by Friday's deadly tornado. Meanwhile, the state lowering its death count Monday, bringing the overall total in Alabama and Mississippi to 22. Dozens more injured. We didn't have no chance to run. In Winona, D'Angelo White's family took cover in his daughter's bedroom as Friday's EF4 ripped through. Their home collapsing, his family miraculously surviving. Uh, someone was hitting me in his, I guess God. White's gratitude soon overshadowed after learning his mother, stepfather, and brother died in the storm. His mother's trailer decimated. Man, all I know is I lost everything. And we really need help, man. We need help. Front bedroom. <laughs> You can see clear through it. Experts now say between Friday and Sunday, at least 20 tornadoes ripped through the South, destroying homes and businesses from Mississippi to Georgia. First responders forever scarred. Fire Captain Larry Brown jumped into action Friday night, finding a two-year-old girl unresponsive beneath the rubble. Started doing CPR on her and she started back breathing. I was like, thank God, she's breathing, she's breathing. But the child did not make it. A devastated Captain Brown telling us... He can't stop crying. Our folks are going to be FEMA agents on the ground reminding people to sign up for federal aid, though in this part of the South, many banding together, refusing to wait. Your family and friends just showed up. Just showed up. No questions asked. No questions asked. They just came in and started putting hands on. So much resilience here despite being faced with scenes like this. In fact, Joe Robinson at the end of that piece telling us he is already determined to rebuild bigger and better. And he said if the government doesn't come through for any reason, he says people here will help each other. At the same time, the other thing that we're hearing from a lot of people is that the South just can't seem to catch a break weather-wise. These latest systems, as we know, also slamming Georgia, Alabama, and the Carolinas with the potential for yet another system later on this week. It really is relentless. Maggie Vespa in Mississippi for us this morning. Maggie, thank you. Shifting gears now to the grand jury here in New York investigating that hush money case against Donald Trump. It reconvened yesterday with new testimony from the former publisher of the National Enquirer who helped arrange the deal, but without a decision on whether to indict. NBC's Garrett Haig joins us now from the district attorney's office here in Manhattan. Hey, Garrett, good morning. 
Hey, Hoda, good morning. Yeah, that grand jury was back in session here yesterday for several hours, but they left without an up or down vote on the question of an indictment, according to multiple sources familiar with the matter. Now, yesterday's convening of this two-month-long grand jury probe appeared to center around hearing testimony from David Pecker. Pecker is a central figure in this drama, as you pointed out, about those hush money payments to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. In his role at the time as publisher of the National Enquirer and a friend of then-candidate Donald Trump, he held helped broker the original $130,000 payment. Now, this was Pecker's second appearance before the grand jury that we know about, which suggests that he may have been brought back to answer questions that have popped up based on the testimony of other witnesses, including perhaps Robert Costello, the last witness who testified last week, he at the behest of Mr. Trump's attorneys. Now, all signs are that this investigation seems to be wrapping up, but it is on its own timeline. The grand jury often meets on Wednesdays and Thursdays, so we could learn more as soon as tomorrow. As for Mr. Trump, he continues to attack the investigation and DA Alvin Bragg in interviews and on social media last night describing the investigations as a new way of cheating in elections designed purely to keep him from the White House. Hoda. All right, Garrett Hick for us there uh, downtown. Garrett, thank you. This morning, there are new developments on the historic protests and strikes that have swept across Israel. The uproar is over a controversial plan to change the way that nation's judicial system works, an overhaul that, at least for now, is being put on hold. NBC's chief foreign correspondent, Richard Richard Engel has made his way to Tel Aviv. Richard, good morning. Good morning, Willie. Things are much calmer here now after Prime Minister Netanyahu decided to postpone his attempts to change the courts. But demonstrators say they are remaining vigilant and ready to return to the streets. It's the biggest domestic crisis in Israel's history, and it's not over. This weekend and into Monday, angry protesters effectively shut down the country with mass demonstrations, strikes and road closures. The numbers were unprecedented in this small country, with hundreds of thousands taking to the streets to oppose a plan by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his right-wing and religiously conservative allies to take more control over the Supreme Court. After referencing Solomon the Wise, Netanyahu late on Monday played for time. When it is possible to prevent civil war through negotiations, I, as prime minister, take a time out for negotiations, he said. Netanyahu now promises his government won't try to pass the controversial judicial overhaul until after the Passover holidays two weeks from now. But protesters remain primed to come back in force at any time. This isn't a set of reforms. This is a, a, a coup by the executive. The proposal that Netanyahu is putting forward was very dangerous. Netanyahu faces criminal charges for bribery and abuse of power. He maintains his innocence. Netanyahu was defeated in elections, only to return three months ago at the head of the most extreme government Israel has ever had. Now he's beholden to his allies as they want to change the courts. Many are drawing comparisons between what is happening here and politics now in the United States. But there is a key difference, the military. The military has long been the bedrock of Israeli society. And when reservists started coming out in protest and refusing to attend training, the government got nervous. 
Willie. Fascinating angle to this. Richard Angle in Tel Aviv. Richard, thank you. All right. 719. We talked about that tornado damage down south and even more severe weather may be headed their way that this week. Al's with us. Hey, Al. That's yeah. right. And again, it's all starting like it did last week along the West Coast. we got a big storm system that's going to be coming in. Winter weather advisories, winter storm watches. You can see this spin right here. That's this storm system that's going to be developing. A weak atmospheric river going to enhance all that moisture. And so we've also got strong winds. 15 million people under wind watches, wind advisories, risk for downed power lines and trees with wind gusts of up to 32 to 44 miles per hour throughout parts of California. Rainfall anywhere from three to five inches, coastal mountain areas, snowfall, the Sierra Range, anywhere from three to four feet three to four more feet of rain. And along this system, we're going to be, there's a stationary front that's coming across the Gulf Coast. Damaging winds, hail could be upwards of one to three inches of rain through the day. In fact, some places could see four inches of rain. And as that California system makes its way cross country by Friday, look at this, 52 million people at risk for damaging winds, hail, and tornadoes likely, especially from Peoria all the way down to Greenville. We're going to be watching this extremely closely. And that is your latest weather, guys. All right, Al, thank you. Uh, Just ahead, new details on that ski crash involving Oscar winner Gwyneth Paltrow after her accuser took the stand. Miguel Almaguer following the trial for us. Hey, Miguel. Good morning. This is the dramatic testimony at the crux of this case. The man accusing of Gwyneth Paltrow takes the stand, but does the jury believe him? You'll hear his testimony coming up. That's straight ahead. Plus, amid the rise in workplace surveillance, we're taking a closer look at products designed specifically to make workers appear busy. I use that all the time. How they work. Al's been doing that for years. How they work and the potential consequences if you are caught. But first, this is today on NBC. How do you do it? What do you do? Look at me. He looks busy. Seven thirty. Oh. Glad to have you here. By the it's way, it's great to be Just here. Brighten the place up. You know how you do. I always love being here. Savannah's enjoying some time off. She'll be back on Monday. First up, this half hour, more expected testimony today in the civil trial over Gwyneth Paltrow's collision with another skier at a resort in Utah. Jurors now have heard from the man who says he was hit by the Oscar winner, leaving him, he says, with permanent injuries. NBC national correspondent Miguel Almaguer has the latest. Miguel, good morning. Hi, guys. Good morning. The retired optometrist suing Gwyneth Paltrow, speaking out for the first time in open court, giving at times a dramatic and emotional account of the 2016 accident. Everything was great. And then I heard something I've never heard at a ski resort, and that was a blood curdling scream. Making his case on the witness stand, Terry Sanderson says Oscar winner Gwyneth Paltrow plowed into him on a Deer Valley ski run seven years ago, a moment he says changed his life forever. It was like somebody was out of control and going to hit a tree and was going to die. And that's what I had until I was hit. Sanderson is suing for at least $300,000. He says the crash left him with serious injuries, including broken ribs and permanent brain damage. The fists and the poles were right there at the bottom of my shoulder blades. Never been hit that hard, and I'm flying. But under cross-examination, the 76-year-old was forced to acknowledge some inconsistencies in his recollection of events. I I don't doubt you. I misspeak a lot. Paltrow's defense team also presented animated recreations of the incident to illustrate testimony from her ski instructor. He said uh, when she was talking to him, he, he simply said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
Eric Christensen says he didn't see the actual collision, but believes Sanderson was to blame. What indicates that he was the upper hill skier is that I witnessed him coming much faster than anybody else on the slope, coming down the hill. Afterwards, he said Sanderson didn't appear to be seriously hurt. He had a wonderful opportunity to tell patrol, I am hurt, I need help. Paltrow, the actress-turned-lifestyle mogul, testified Sanderson hit her from behind, and she's not responsible for his injuries. Mr. Sanderson categorically hit me on that ski slope, and that is the truth. The jury also heard from ski patroller and EMT Whitney Smith, who brought Sanderson down on the slope on a sled and stayed with him for about two hours after the collision. She said Sanderson had injured ribs, but was not showing signs of a serious head injury. Guys, back to you. All right, Miguel, thank you very much. With us now with her perspective is NBC's senior legal correspondent, Laura Jarrett. Laura, good morning. Hey, Laura. Good morning, guys. This seems like one of those typical kind of he said, she said. It's basically who you believe at the end of the day, right? This entire thing is going to come down to credibility, and partly because we don't have any video. There was some dispute, I think, about whether there was a GoPro video, a GoPro, but that doesn't exist. And even the witness testimony, as you heard, is somewhat conflicting on this. Um, The ski instructor for Gwyneth Paltrow didn't actually see the moment of impact. Mm -hmm. So this is all going to come down to who does the jury believe, Mm -hmm. since their two sides are completely diametrically opposed about who hit who first. A lot of analysts talked on Friday that Gwyneth Paltrow was a good witness for her case. How was Mr. Sanders yesterday for his? You know, it's hard to say. He was a little bit faltering on some critical facts. A little bit of inconsistency showed up there. Um, But he clearly uh, was uh, very emotional, and perhaps Mm -hmm. the jury found that sympathetic at times. I I think the hardest thing for him is that contemporary Right after this happened, he said, I'm okay. Uh, Other people testified that he said I was doing just fine. Now, perhaps, you know, he didn't want to say he was hurt. A lot of people, when they've been in an accident, you know, don't want to be rushed to the hospital. That's that's okay. And the jury's just going to have to decide, again, whose side do they really believe? One of the weird things I think about this case is it happened seven years ago. Mm -hmm. So I was like, wait a minute. It happened seven years ago. Only now we're seeing them in court. Why did it take so long? It's not clear. And it's something the jury might have a, a knock against him. He waited three years before he filed suit. And that's something that may come into the calculation for trying to figure out what exactly the motivations are for him. How does wealth, fame, all the things Mm -hmm. that Gwyneth Paltrow has, how does that figure into this case? Yeah, it's always hard to know whether the jury is going to punish her for that or whether they're going to put the thumb on the scale for her in this. I think the fact that she's symbolically only asking for a dollar might be interesting to to the jury. They might say, why wouldn't she just settle this? Why not just pay Mm -hmm. the money? It's obviously a lot of money, $300,000, but for her, it might not be a lot. And so the jury might say, well, maybe she really has a case here. Maybe she has a reason to fight this if she's actually taken it to trial. And quickly, her kids, are they going to take the stand? We were wondering about yeah, that. It seems like a, a sort of a risky move, you know, especially for a high profile celebrity. You really want to put your kids yeah. on the stand. But again, maybe she's trying to signal to the jury how much she really believes in her innocence here. OK. All right. We'll Laura, thank you so thank you, Laura. much. All right. We've got a lot more ahead, guys, including a potential breakthrough that could revolutionize cancer treatment for tens of thousands of women. But first, Vicky is here with a real eye opener on products designed to make you appear busy at work. Vicky, what are we talking about here? Hey, good morning, Willie and Hoda. So not for you guys, but for the audience, do you always feel like when you're at work, someone might be watching you? Odds are they are because companies are leaning into surveillance software. But now some workers are fighting back with things called mouse jigglers and and other software. I'm going to show you how they're doing it. That's coming up next right here on Today. Mm. 
This morning at 741 on In-Depth Today, the technology that can help companies monitor productivity and the new ways that some employees are trying to get around that. NBC's senior consumer investigative correspondent Vicki Wynn is here with more. Hey, Vicki. Hey, Vic. hey, good morning, Willie and Hoda. There is a decent chance that your work computer or tablet or phone has some kind of tracking software on it that monitors exactly what you're doing. This is an industry of the surveillance software. It became really popular during the pandemic. But now some workers are trying to game the system. The thing is, you got to be ready for the consequences if you're caught. From sneaking in a midday nap to enjoying a bare minimum Monday. And the latest rage applying. What's that? Apparently it's the new quiet quitting. Oh yeah, isn't that when you apply to a gazillion other jobs because you feel undervalued, underpaid and stressed at your current toxic one? Workers now dealing with multiple work scenarios. Half are back in the office, 28% working remotely, and 18% doing a hybrid of both. It's prompting some companies to install so-called tattleware, software that tracks employees working on company devices like phones, tablets, and computers. In some cases, measuring productivity by recording keystrokes or tracking email. Others can take random screenshots of what's on your computer, and some can even take photos of you using the computer's built-in camera. Monitoring software is a billion-dollar industry expected to double by 2030. I think employers feel increasingly out of control of the workforce. J.S. Nelson is a professor of law at Harvard and Villanova, specializing in workplace surveillance and management. How worried should workers be? Well, you know your company. Is this being used in some way to supplement the information that the employer needs somehow? Or really, is this an excuse for poor management? Nelson points to common tricks popular on social media, like this mouse jiggler with a rotating base, or this USB dongle and this free software, all designed to keep the cursor randomly moving across the screen. Nelson says these products are often marketed as undetectable to IT departments. It's not true. No, that's not true. If you're a worker who is caught using some of this technology, what can happen? You could be fired. Can your employer penalize you financially? It depends on what kind of contract you've signed and what the agreement is with the employer. So there could be a financial impact to this kind of cheating. I haven't seen that yet in employment contracts, but what I have seen is people disciplined. Vicky, this is kind of a cat and mouse game here, isn't it? <laughs> Literally, yes. How, how are companies actually figuring out if you're using one of these hacks? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. We talked to the owners of Sentry PC. That's one of the biggest surveillance software companies out there. And they say this might work for a short time, but mm-hmm. it is certainly not a long-term solution. All the company has to do, like with those mouse jigglers, for example, go back <laughs> and look and see, oh, you know what? It was just Hoda's cursor that was just moving back Why'd and you forth say on the same thing. I say <laughs> Willie's Willy cursor. <laughs> <laughs> well, your boss is here. They can really see what you're doing so we're good that's true they see <laughs> us right. well it's interesting i don't it doesn't give a lot of trust between yeah. worker and employee yeah. and that really at the end of the day yeah. is the big concern if yeah. you feel like you've got to game yeah. the system or your employer feels like they have to take screenshots of your face yeah. then you might have to take a step back and apply some of that time to is this really the place where i, I want to be, be? Right. Yeah. yeah cool all right, all right Vicky, thank you yeah. let's go over to mr roker busy tracking the weather that's hey, right this is where i want to be and if you where you want to be is looking west tonight if you've got clear skies because we got a parade of planets 
20 minutes after sunset, Jupiter, Mercury, Venus, Uranus, also Mars and the moon all in line. Now, you're going to need binoculars to see uh, Mercury and uh, Uranus, but all in all, it'll be spectacular out there. Where will it be the best viewing? Well, you're going to have a beautiful view in Chicago, partly planetary. We're looking at cloudy skies along the southeast. Not so good. A starry night, midsection of the country. Clouds over Texas, so a little problem seeing that. No show in the Pacific Northwest. Crystal clear through the southwest. Rest of the country, rain and snow and wind later today. We're looking at frigid conditions in the plains. Sunny and cool in the midsection of the country. Strong storms down through the Gulf Coast. I love my job. (laughs) But I I was a little confused. So you do you need a telescope for all the planets? No, 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 just just for Jupiter and Uranus. Thanks, Al. (laughs) Ahead on Pop Start. Big news for fans of the White Lotus. What we're learning this morning about the hit shows, luxurious destination for season three. I just wanted you to say it one more time. Coming up on Pop Star the next half hour, uh, we've got a lot. We've got a legend stopping by the studio. There she is, the queen of hip hop show herself. One of the best live performances you'll ever see is from that woman right there. Mary J. Blige here to tell us about very personal inspiration behind her new project. Looking forward to Mary J. Blige. 